Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we're continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's episode is the first of a two-part conversation with Dr. Jean Clinton, which is focused on student well-being. Our guest, Dr. Jean, is a renowned child psychiatrist who bridges the education and health sectors to create a united front on children's mental health and well-being. In this episode, Dr. Jean dives into neuroscience, helping educators understand what we can do to support our learners, both in classrooms and in remote learning environments. So Jean, welcome today and give us a sense of what you've been up to lately. Hi, Jen. Thank you. And thanks for that lovely introduction. I'm looking forward to this. I remember I was sitting outside on picnic bench up in Ottawa having a conversation. So I'm looking forward to the same again. So what I've been up to, one is in this time of COVID-19, has been really a lot of webinars and podcasts and a lot on Facebook, talking to people and being invited to talk to people about how can we prepare our families and our educators for this challenge. And so I've been talking about the importance of connecting before correcting and really examining how we can make our kids feel safe, significant and, uh, and situated. And when I'm not busy with uh, COVID-19, work just now. I'm really thrilled to be working with Michael Fullen and the new pedagogies for deep learning work, where we're, uh, the, the new kind of mantra is uh, uh, moral imperative is good at learning, good at life. So we're really looking at uh, how can we bring well-being and uh, an achievement and equity, not as, as uh, things that happen on one side of the desk and the other side of the desk, but completely integrated like a double helix with relationships as the glue that binds the two of them together. So that's, that's very exciting work, which is expanding my thinking and bringing my knowledge of the neuroscience of learning to, to the work that they've been doing for so long. Jean, that's really uh, interesting to hear what you're saying. And I think that's something that we've really made progress on over the last 10 years. You know, a decade ago, so many of our school systems, the senior leaders and the school leaders and the teachers in the classrooms, were really thinking about pedagogy and what does good learning look like? What does good teaching and learning look like? And I think there was always kind of an understated acceptance that well-being was a part of that, but we were not as intentional with it. And I think what's happened in the last few years is a real understanding, like you said, that there's that helix where it is has to be well-being and learning together. Yeah, I, it's so true. And I think, I think our kids have been telling us for a long time. I really enjoyed the webinar that I was able to sit in for uh, with uh, Knowledge Hook last night, Jen, where it talked about what the, you know, a very high percentage of kids are bored at school. And for me as a child psychiatrist, I link the boredom along with the, we're, we're seeing this huge rise in anxiety in young people. Well, we've got, a, I think, a phenomenal 
phenomenal opportunity to say, here we have our kids, they come to school, we have them, we are educators, and how about we think about that role as being human development, thinking about the well-being, thinking about how can we, through education and learning, help them also develop the social and emotional skills of being able to cope with things? And how do we change the system so that they're no longer bored, but they're completely engaged in the world to change the world through their education, which I saw wonderful examples of in the work that you were doing in Ottawa. I think it's an interesting combination. You know, we we know that boredom is not good for learning. It's also not good for well-being either. And so the flip side of that is how do we make sure that in our classrooms and outside of our classrooms, our students are engaged in tasks that excite them, that they feel that they have agency, that they feel like they can be moving forward, and that decreases the boredom, which helps with learning, and it also helps with their well-being. Well, there's a, a key thing that, uh, that I hear that resonates with what you're saying, Jen, and that is agency. So I think sometimes teachers worry that when they hear that kids are bored, they feel that they have to be some kind of clown up at the front of the class, engaging them through their activity. Whereas I think the real heart of the matter, where real change is going to happen, is in student agency, where we work together with students. And, you know, I talk about we because I do some teaching at the medical school. And really, it's working together to see what does engage you. What can I learn from you that excites you? How can I be as much of a co-learner in this endeavor as you are? So that the teachers are scaffolding, but the students are the ones who are driving that engagement and agency. That's so true. And we see what that looks like when it's happening in the right way. It's magic when you walk in the classroom. You can tell that that's working that way. Jean, let's take a circle back and go right back to well-being. What do we mean by well-being? What do we mean by student well-being? As many definitions as there are, as there are not, maybe not quite as many stars in the Milky Way, but there are many different definitions of well-being. And the one that I and others have landed on is one to kind of pivot around is from the World Health Organization. And the key thing from the World Health Organization is that well-being and particularly mental well-being is about way more than just the absence of illness. It really has to do with flourishing. They describe it as a state of well-being is when an individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully. And this one is so important to me, is able to make a contribution to her or his community. So I think of this and also think about the First Nations wellness continuum where they talk about well-being is a balance. It is a balance between uh, emotional, physical, cognitive, social, where you're searching for meaning and purpose, hope and belonging in your life. And so when you think about education and well-being and education, we know from the work of some researchers like Heather Mallon that kids are very often, the boredom research tells us the same, that they really don't see a purpose in going to school other than it's what you're supposed to do. And if you don't have a purpose, you can very easily flounder. 
We know that when you have a sense of belonging in school and in life and in family, that your ability to manage stress is far greater. Plus, there's tons of positive neurotransmitters when you have a sense of belonging that increase your reward transmitters, which makes your brain more primed and ready for action. And then having true meaning in your life and you, you think, well, what's, what, what kind of meaning does a kindergarten kid have? Well, it's getting up every day with a sense of joy and a love of play. So if we can think about well-being as that creating in our classes, in our districts, that sense of purpose, hope, belonging and meaning, then if we have that as our North Star, then our priorities align in and around them. And we say that our well-being of our kids is absolutely is as important and not an add-on. Jean, why is well-being so important to student learning? You, you alluded to that, talking about some of the components of it. Why is it critical for student learning? Well, the reality is that if we are not in a state where we are calm, alert, excited, and engaged, which is what is an outcome, if you like, of well-being, then your brain is not in its high receptivity, high learning state. So if we want our kids to learn well, we need to make sure that they feel well. And I'm so excited that our next podcast, we're going to be talking about teacher well-being, because what we're also seeing is that when teachers are well, or when they're not well, there is stress contagion. So when kids are not in this sense, having the sense of hope and belonging in their school activity, then their brain is on high alert. So our brain is an organ of adaptation. It morphs to the environment that it's in and the environment that it's been built in. So if you're a little one who has had high stress in your early life and you come into school and there's all kinds of noise, that makes your brain, your limbic brain, a more primitive emotional brain, scan the environment to see, is there some danger here? And when you're scanning the environment, all of your brain juice, all of the glucose and attention is focused on that and your learning brain just cannot turn on. So you need that state of belonging, of calm, alert, regulated, able to relate before you can actually reason. It was so powerful, Jean, when you worked with some of the educators in our school district. I remember you talked to some of our psychologists and our psychologists actually put together a program where they were meeting with our principals once a month at our monthly principal meetings. And they were actually talking about some of the neuroscience that you're talking about, about what is the impact on a child's brain if they don't have that sense of connection with their family, with others, with adults, with peers, etc. And it had a massive influence on principals ended up inviting these teams into their schools so that they could actually talk about the neuroscience behind that. And with that understanding, it helped all of us realize when children are having difficulties being in a classroom and, and behaving in a positive way with each other, with themselves, with each other, and with adults. There's a reason behind that, and there's things that educators and adults can do to help child develop some of those skills. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
it's so pivotal for understanding. What we know is that the brain develops in a hierarchical way. So if you can imagine an upside down triangle, the base of the brain is all hooked up for kids when they're born for blood pressure, heart rate and temperature. Experience is what makes all of the connections up to the next part of the brain that develops highly under construction in toddlerhood. And that's the limbic emotional part of the brain. And the last part of the brain to develop is the cortex, the thinking part of the brain. And so what we know is that middle part of the brain, the limbic system, has a function that's absolutely been essential for us to survive. We've had to peruse the environment for safety and reward in order to survive as a species. So as I said, if you've got a little one who is coming in, or even if you've got a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old who is coming in and they're beyond guard, their fight or flight limbic system it has been primed for looking out for things, then they are going to, one, misinterpret experience. So someone may brush against them accidentally and they're on high, hypervigilant and high alert and they think, oh, that's an aggressive act and they whip out at them. That limbic system is absolutely driving the car. The stop, plan, think about it part of the brain is not connecting. What we know makes a huge difference for the buffering of that behavior is relationship. So the most powerful buffer in times of stress and distress is social connectedness. So that's where that sense of belonging, that sense of relationship with the teacher who can just say to the child or the young person, hey, I see, I see that that active part of your brain is really firing right now. Just take a second and chill. The problem that we see is that people interpret that behavior as misbehavior instead of recognizing that really it's stress behavior. So there is something in the environment, either a biological stressor, the kid is sick or is tired or is hungry or is cold. There's an emotional stressor. Something's gone on on the bus or the way in. There's a cognitive stressor. This is too much for me, man. I can't understand it. Or a pro-social or a social stressor, as Stuart Shanker talks about. So you've got this stress system activated with adrenaline and cortisol flooding the system. And all we see is the very tip, the behavior, it is, you know, F you, I don't want to do it. But we have to become stress detectives and say, what is the story behind this behavior? And that will be what your psychologist will have gone in to think every kid will do well if they can. What is the story here that's interfering with this one's behavior? Is it stress behavior rather than misbehavior? Gina, I can't begin to tell you how effective those discussions were with our staff and our team of psychologists. Actually, that became a bit of a mantra. It's not misbehavior, it's stress behavior. And that became language that was very current in the school district. And that's a turning point, right? When, you, when sure you're is. able to actually understand what's going on. And it was interesting when we had our monthly principal meetings, it was always a combination of elementary and secondary principals together. 
And what was very interesting is that the principals that had young children in kindergarten that were seeing these active behaviors that were very difficult to manage within a classroom, they were able to work with their kindergarten teams, the early childhood educators and the teachers in the classroom and provide them the support and the professional learning opportunities to really think about relationships and how do they help children develop the skills to be able to self-regulate. And then way up at the other end, at the secondary level, it was interesting, the principal said that it was very helpful for teachers that assumed that by the time the child was in early adolescence or late adolescence, that it was almost too late to change behavior. And that they really doubled down. And again, you know, their natural intuition is to want to have a relationship with the student and that that was reinforced and very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think many people think that, you know, it's partly due to all of the work that people like me have done in terms of making sure that we get the early years right. But so many people think, well, the, the, the brain is formed then, but absolutely not. The brain of adolescence is under construction. They are pruning and rewiring and um, specializing, and they have a massive need for connection to adults to be mentored into into learning about identity relationships. So it's a wonderful thing that you're pointing out that adolescence is a huge opportunity for changing your story. If you've had a very rough early educational history, you can turn around in a high school that is based on caring, the pervasive cultures of caring with high, high expectations, but with individualization so that you get the kid. You know, my own son, one of my kids, I have five kids, was never very good at school. But the teachers that he remembers in high school are the ones that reached out to him, found out what he was interested in, had a shared interest in Pink Floyd, for example, and he thrived in those classrooms. The other classrooms where it was stuff the duck of get the content in wasn't helpful for him. So adolescence is a great period of time for changing the narrative. It's fascinating because we have so many wonderful teachers and school administrators, and they intuitively know about that relationship piece. And that's been happening, you know, forever in our schools. What I think is interesting about this is that there's a science behind it. And I remember you talking about the idea of self-regulation. And there's an assumption that as children get older, that they should be able to self-regulate. And that children or adolescents that are not able to do that, it's because something has happened in their childhood. They haven't had that stability in the relationships, et cetera. And they still need the support of co-regulation. So someone helping them to regulate their actions and their emotions, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about co-regulation. One of the things to keep in mind, or I have to keep in mind, is that the development of the ability to recognize when you're stressed is a lifelong endeavor. We are in this time of COVID-19. People are saying, oh, I'm so tired. My energy goes up one day and goes down another day. I can't sleep. I'm overly stressed. And when uh, researchers ask people about what makes you stressed, they don't have the language for it. So the ability to manage your emotions, your ability to manage your awareness of yourself, your internal workings, the ability to read others, I think, first of all, we 
we need to recognize is a lifelong endeavor. So our adolescents are not finished the work of self-regulation and it's why we really need to continue to be thinking about uh, social and emotional learning continuing into the complexity of relationships that come out in adolescence you know as adults in terms of self-reg and self-awareness and as adults when something happens we've got enough history behind us to say it's going to feel bad now but that feeling bad is going to lessen over time. When you're an adolescence, you're still majorly under construction and you think the pain that you're experiencing now is going to be the experience that you have forever. So we need to give kids the language of self-regulation to say, this is a big feeling that I have, but it is just a feeling. I can be the boss of how I deal with this feeling. So it's a lifelong, a lifelong endeavor. What we know about building connections with kids, how can we co-regulate them? First of all is building that relationship that you are the trusted others so that the kids know that you are someone who's not going to be talking about them behind your back that they can come to you, that you have uh, high expectations of them. And so I've come across the work, well, I've known about the work of the Search Institute for a very long time. And they first talked about uh, external and internal assets that kids would have. And uh, over millions of surveys, they showed that the more positive assets kids had, the more positive outcomes and the less negative outcomes. And then they developed the developmental relationships framework. So this is a search institute. And, you know, people say to me, well, how do you actually build relationships with kids? And I love this because it's a framework that says, here's what you can do. You express care. You show me that I matter to you. You challenge growth. You push me to keep getting better. You provide support. Help me complete tasks and achieve goals. Share power. Treat me with respect and give me a say and expand possibilities. Connect me with people and places that broaden my world. So when kids have a sense of belonging, when they have people who have built relationships with them, that they have a priority, I'm going to connect before I correct, then the adults can be those co-regulators. They can, in fact, do what the airplane people say, and that is put on their own mask first to lend the kids their calm. That was a big, long answer, wasn't it? Jean, you have a great use of language that for people like myself that don't have your background, it's just really easy to understand. There's little phrases that you use the phrase, connect before I correct. And those are things that we can remember. And uh, I'm thinking not only of my role as an educator, but certainly as a parent as well. And uh, I always felt when I was listening to you, it was like, oh, I better do a better job as being a parent. So they're great little things like that that just are easy to remember. and, And we appreciate that. 
You've talked a fair amount about some practices that educators can use in the classroom to create a culture of well-being in the classroom. And you've talked a lot about that relationship between the teacher and the individual student. What are some of the things that kind of overall create a sense of that culture of well-being within the classroom or, or in the school for that matter? Or in the school, yeah, yeah. So I think there are some basic principles and that you can go from a number of different ways of looking at this. So you can start off the day by saying, here are the rules that you have to follow. Or you can start off the day by saying, all right, guys, we're all here to learn together. What are the conditions that will make that learning the best it can be? You see the difference in the mindset, completely different mindset. And so when you step that back one, you then recognize in those two scenarios, you have educators who have a view of the child, a view of the learner that's very different. The one educator is saying, perhaps, I don't know, but the one who says, here are the rules that you have to follow, is saying, I have a job to teach kids to fill the bucket and make sure that they get my teaching into them. But I mean, that's a gross simplification and overgeneralized, but you, just, for, just for effect. The other, in terms of creating these conditions for co-regulation, the other is saying what my view of the child, the youth is, is that they are co-creators of the learning and that my job is to be more like a gardener, creating the conditions for thriving. I've got lots of things I need to do as a gardener to prime the soil, to scaffold the learning, but I have a very deep view that the child is competent and capable and has great ideas. And then you take it one step further and you say, if I believe the child is competent and capable, then my role as an educator is to light the flame of learning and to do that, I need to think about how can they engage the world in order to change the world. So you create the conditions hugely through your mindset. And it's not just a growth mindset. It's a whole physical way of being. So then you think, what are the conditions then for optimal learning? So we've got, we need the mindset of the educator and we need the mindset of the institution to be, as I walk in the door, I'm not going to be seeing just trophies and honor roll. I'm going to be seeing, oh, well, maybe I could see the sustainable development goals, right? And as soon as you come in the foyer that says, as an educational institute, we care about the well-being of all the people in the world. So that just as an example, or you come in and you see a whole series of artwork honoring the indigenous ways of knowing that you walk into a school and you can feel it's very different. So in those schools, you are aware that the top priority is creating safety so that kids feel emotionally safe, physically safe, psychologically safe. They also feel significant. They have a sense of belonging. They have a sense that they are valued and valuable and they feel situated. That is that they have something to contribute, that they've got a direction that they're going in, that there's a reason for their being there and that they are not just a single cog in a wheel, but a major contributor to the well-being of the entire school. 
So safe, significant, and situated. That's the work of my friend Stephen de Groot, who has brought that thinking to me. Jean, you really highlighted in your answer the link between well-being and pedagogy, because in order for learning to take place, we know that those are some of the underlying pieces that have to be there. And really, that's the link between well-being and learning is the pedagogy, the way that learning is taking place. Absolutely. And more and more, the science of the mind, the science of health, the science of learning are coming together to realize this is such a core component. And that's such a, a movement forward, the fact that health and education, there's an interlinking between the two. Because we know that children and adolescents, of course, spend so many of their hours of the day in a school environment. And how can we work with our partners? And actually, that brings me on to a a next question. Who are our partners in student well-being? You know, we're talking to senior administrators here. And obviously, we know that all of us have a, a big role to play. But who are our partners? Well, you know, my mind, when I think about this question, really goes to who else is in the business, quote unquote, of creating a civic society when it comes to our children? And so we can think of at the far end, children's mental health. But I think we need to be very much thinking about the recreation, library, the people who contribute to kids being excited about learning and excited about the world. We also, when we think about the ecological model, we need to say, okay, so we have our relationship with this child. We also, how are we engaging with the parents? What's the role that the parents have in kids' education? And are we honoring that enough? What the evidence says is that it's not about the bake sales and the, and the parent committees that influence children's learning, but the environment of learning at home, that there's reading going on, that there's inquiry going on about how, what are you learning and this is what I'm learning. And then it goes into, well, what are the conditions around the child, the place that they are learning and and playing in? Are the architects of green space and enough play space involved in what you're doing in education and so on? You go out further further and further out from the neighborhood to the city to the country. So all of these these continuum are involved in the well-being of children. What as senior leaders is, I think, is to examine Where are the ways along the path of the child arriving at school? Who touches them in any kind of way? And how can we as a school community reach out and say, what are our common goals for these children? Are we making sure that as they come to school, they're feeling safe, significant and situated? Is the neighborhood friendly? Is the neighborhood safe? Are there things that we can do around that? Then at the other end, I think it's really important to think about mental well-being in schools through an implementation lens. And the work that my friend Kathy Short with School Mental Health Ontario has done is absolutely amazing. It's a model that can be used across the world because it's looking at what are the conditions that need to be in place for us to be creating healthy classrooms. It includes 
what do all children need? They need to be welcome. They need to be included. They need to be, their voices needed to be heard. What do we need for tier so that's tier one. What do we need for tier two? Well, we need for educators to be able to be aware of what is, what are mental challenges and mental problems? How might I recognize them in kids who might be at risk for that? And how do I reach out, connect with them, connect them to guidance, connect them with public health, connect them so that they prevent them going on to the top tier, the small percentage of kids with significant mental health problems. And for that, we absolutely need to have relationships, that we have dialogues, that we have uh, discussion about how do we have pathways into care, while in care, through care, and out of care. So that is absolutely collaboration is the key to all of these that framework was really helpful, and we certainly used that uh, in all of our schools and certainly at the district level as well. And, and building those partnerships were essential and, and very helpful. Our health partners, our mental health partners were right there with us, and I'm sure that's happening in lots of places around the world. We have an, a very challenging time right now for health reasons and for financial reasons, economic reasons, and of course, for social reasons. And when we think of the pandemic and the fact that children are not in schools right now in many parts of the world, including in Canada, how can educators help in this remote learning environment maintain that sense of well-being with children and with adolescents? This is where I might get myself in a little bit of trouble, Jen, because I've been listening to parents through these past number of weeks. And the Canadian Pediatric Society, we've just put a thing in an op-ed uh, paper in myself and Dr. Robin Williams to say that the parents are not okay. And part of the reason that the parents are not okay is because they're feeling so much pressure, pressure from their workers, their work, their employers, but also a lot of pressure from schools. And the challenge is that there's huge variability across the world on what are the expectations in this remote learning environment. And so in one day, I had a conversation that some parents are hearing that you are to be your child's teacher now. You have to create that learning environment that they had at school at home, and here are your instructions. And on the other hand, another uh, director of education saying, listen, this is going to be a couple of months in their life. What's important is that they have a sense of safety. What you're going to remember is how they felt in this time. So make the living the learning. Make what you're doing and playing and experiencing, have that be the child's learning. Learn through play. So we've got this huge diversity of instruction coming. I feel that we need to be asking parents not to be homeschooling, not to be teachers, but to be supporters of learning at home. And so that is thinking about the development of the brain. The kids are developing while they're still at home. And what can you observe that they're interested in, that they're excited about? And how can you introduce some of these concepts? You know, you've received the overall expectations from school. How can you, through what you do every day, make that learning exciting and observe and be with and play and enjoy together? 
that I think is absolutely essential, but it also means the employers have to back off a little and say we cannot expect the same productivity in this period of time as we did pre-COVID. It's just not possible. And we're seeing 35% increase in uh, the prescriptions of Valium and benzodiazepines in the US. We're seeing all kinds of increases. So I think we really need to be thinking about, you know, what do we want to have as our outcome at the end of this? And I say it is as healthy families and kids as possible. So the stress has to be minimized. And good educators are saying all the time, we will meet them where they are. Each child, according to their needs, is what's going to happen when they return to school. And, you know, again, the variability of educators across the world is huge. But the point that you, in terms of reaching out to kids, you know, there are some kids who are doing Zoom classrooms. There are other places where that's not permitted. But the point that you make is such an important point. Just reaching out, sending a text to particularly the kids that you know who are more vulnerable, the kids that you know who their home situation may be a bit more chaotic, who may not have the resources that the other families do. Just the dose effect, the amount of contact that you need to give that dose of, I care about you, you are important, I'm thinking about you, hope everything's okay. You know, that 30-second dose is absolutely enough. Do it a couple of times a week makes a whole lot of difference. There were a group of teachers in the U.S. in an area where the kids didn't have tablets or anything, and they got together and did a convoy through the neighborhood, just shouting out, honking their horns and shouting out to the kids, hey, guys, we're thinking about you, we miss you. That is a connect. That is a hugely important. And thank you so much for uh, pointing that out. One last comment just before we wrap up, Jean. The role of school and district leaders in supporting student well-being. What can district leaders and school leaders do to really create that culture within the organization? I think that it's really important for district leaders to fully examine and be reflective and ask themselves, what do I see that we are in the business of? There are tremendous pressures on uh, school leaders and district leaders to stuff the duck, to cover this curriculum or that curriculum. And so I think it really requires what I've described as standing back and saying, what am I in the business of? What are we in the business of? And I'm hoping that more and more we'll see people thinking, we are in the business of human developers. We are in the business of creating civic society. So we want, and there are so many cliches, but we really need to be in this complex world we live in. We really need our young people at the end of their educational journey to be able to think, to be able to be critically encountering and dialoguing around tough decisions. They need to know how they learn, not 
bits and pieces. They need to understand how do I learn best? And they need to be knowledgeable about themselves and knowledgeable about others. And so as district leaders, how can you create the conversations with those around you to have that vision be one that everyone buys into? Why do I say that? Because the evidence is accumulating that when we focus on the whole child, your achievement, people who are on your case are happy because the kids do better. Your well-being people who say what's business of school about, they are happy as well. So you get a win-win situation. So that would be, from my health perspective, what we need to have our district leaders be supported. And so that means reaching out to peers as you're creating through Knowledge Hook, Jen, to have that uh, collaborative professionalism so inherent in the work that you do. Thanks, Jean. And we, um, you know, as district leaders and as school leaders, we all live within the confines of the policies and the expectations of of ministries of education. And of course, we have to live within those. But the messaging and the the feeling that district leaders and school leaders can can give on that organization where they can, you know, they're they're messaging on, on the link of well-being to learning, the link between children being happy and safe and their ability to be able to produce at school all of the, that kind of messaging really helps to make sure that the environment is one that we know from both a science perspective and a pedagogical perspective are the right things to be doing for kids. And I think it's a real reassurance to senior leaders, Jean, is to hear someone like you talking about it because it reaffirms and confirms the kinds of things that they're wanting to do in their districts and they can move forward with that. If we can think about good at learning and good at life as the new moral imperative and share that there's power in that connecting collaboratively, professionally and making it happen. It doesn't get better than that, Jean. Jean, thank you so much for this first podcast. And we're going to look forward to podcast number two, where you talk about not just student well-being, but adult well-being, because we know that the two are interconnected. Thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Huge thank you to Dr. Jean for sharing her expertise on children's well-being, as well as on the relationship between well-being and learning. She did a wonderful job explaining to us the brain science and providing practical suggestions as to how all educators can support children's mental health. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we will soon have an exciting episode, which will be the second part of this conversation. In part two, Dr. Jean will shift from student well-being to adult well-being and the importance of tending to our own mental health so we can best support the students in our care. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.